Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. How will the global economy recover? Now, this is a very big question, and I'm very, very pleased that we've got a distinguished group of uh, people who are guests. Uh, Charles Bean, who uh, was the former chief, exec- uh, chief economist of the Bank of England uh, and, and deputy governor, if I'm not mistaken, uh, responsible right. for monetary policy. Um, uh, and uh, John Gong, uh, professor of economics at uh, University of International Business and Economics in Beijing, uh, and who's an insider in terms of uh, um, you know, policy uh, makers in, in China. And uh, Taimur uh, Baig, uh, the chief economist of, uh, of uh, DBS Bank, and uh, he's got a very strong uh, emerging market focus. When we talk about the global economy going forward, uh, especially resulting from everything that's happening because of the pandemic, uh, we're talking about very complex issues. We're talking about public finances. We're talking about capital markets. Uh, we're talking about job creation, uh, small businesses. Um, very many different dimensions, um, you know, that that uh, that we need to cover. All of us have a, a perspective of the magnitude of the issues that we're dealing with right now. But I think we now need to start constructing uh, what we think or how we think uh, recovery will work itself out, given the current realities. Um, you know, the, one of the realities is that there does not seem to be a vaccine, um, you know, anytime soon. Um, I have had to internalize that because I was hoping that even without a vaccine, there would be some form of um, you know, uh, recovery process underway. But now with the European holidays uh, coming on stream, we actually fear um, you know, a, a second wave, uh, which actually happened in China uh, just the last week. Um, so, so with all, of, all that we're looking at, um, as economists, as chief economists, as people who have been in, in this position, um, you know, in your respective positions, let me just go through with each of you what's top of mind in terms of how this whole process is going to work out and what are the elements that you put your finger on individually. Okay, well, the first thing I'd want to stress is that the nature of the problem that we're faced with has... Uh, inherent uh, uncertainty. So this is not a world of risk we're talking about. It's genuine uncertainty where we can't put probabilities on particular outcomes. Uh, And we don't really know when an effective vaccine or treatment uh, will be available. There there are vaccines under trial at the moment, which may turn out to be effective, but they may not. Um, A good outcome is obviously one where uh, say towards the end of this year, we think we have effective vaccines or treatments available. Uh, a worst case scenario is one where uh, the scientists fail to come up with something that's very effective and we're living with the disease as uh, endemic for many years to come. Uh, so that's one essential uncertainty. Then on top of that, I think I'd layer uh, two other uncertainties which are interrelated with that. Uh, The first is the pace of the recovery, which depends not only on government policy choices, both in the health sphere. So just today, the UK government is debating whether to reduce its social distancing rule from 
two meters down to one meter. So it's not just government choices, but it's also how individuals respond to that. So even if uh, formal measures uh, uh, reduce the intensity, consumers may still be quite reluctant to go to their shops and so forth. Uh, and then beyond that question, and there's obviously an issue about what policy support is provided to the recovery, there's also the longer term question uh, of how much permanent scarring there is uh, to the economy's productive potential. And that can come about through business failures, from the destruction of valuable uh, job matches, um, but also and this is even if you get an early vaccine, there'll probably be a desire of businesses to operate more resilient business models with shorter supply chains and so forth. So restructuring may be required. And seeing how those three elements, the health, the recovery, and the longer term scarring uh, play out and interrelate, I think is the key question, the key unknown. As a monetarist, um, what numbers do you have at the top of your mind uh, that you're tracking? Uh, there is the government subsidies that are underway, uh, the government's affordability of those subsidies, um, and how long they will run, and, and how much do they go to at least keeping the, the GDP, um, you know, tagging along, uh, tugging along at least? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the government quite rightly has taken the view that it was appropriate to undertake a major fiscal relaxation. So the budget deficit this year is likely to be of the order of 15% of GDP. Um, so really huge uh, uh, increase. But that's an entirely appropriate response to um, what's like, think of it as like a, a natural disaster. Uh, the standard argument should be that governments um, uh, allow borrowing to rise when you have wars, disasters, financial crises, and then in good times you get uh, the deficit under control, bring debt to GDP down to make room for uh, the next time you need to undertake emergency measures. So the government uh, has introduced a lot of schemes designed to support the economy through the hiatus to activity. So particularly uh, the job retention scheme, the furlough scheme, which uh, pays uh, up to 80% of workers uh, pay who are on uh, temporary right. layoff. Um, now, uh, the government will, uh, has said that it wants to start withdrawing that support gradually from the, the summer. There's a limit to how much support the government can offer. In addition to that, it's also provided uh, loan support, and part of this has come through the Bank of England, basically the banking system, uh, providing loans underwritten by the government. I think a key question is going to be uh, if the period of depressed activity lasts a long time, so that firms uh, build up quite large debts uh, to keep going, then there's a question about whether you have to shift from expecting those loans to be paid back 
to um, either writing some of them off or converting them into equity. Because otherwise, uh, when you finally get through the other end of the, uh, the, the uh, recession and slowdown, you leave businesses so heavily indebted, they can't really invest and take the economy forward. So there's going to be key questions for the government about how it unwinds the schemes that it's introduced already, getting the pace of that right, uh, facilitating structural change where it's necessary, and potentially also the question about how it deals with any private debt hangover from this. So the first question really is, um, as, a, as an economist, um, what's top of your mind in terms of the numbers that you're looking at uh, and what you think are the three key issues? You know, I started to make an analogy to the Spanish flu, you know, a few months ago. But this time, I think this analogy is more and more appropriate. Uh, <laughs> uh, Beijing, as you said, just, just starting to see the second wave. And I think that, the, um, you know, these kind of things are going to happen as well in other parts of the world. The Spanish flu lasted 18 months, a year and a half, actually, uh, experienced three waves. So um, this, um, this thing, you know, looks like um, very much like Spanish flu. Uh, other than, you know, Spanish flu sort of disappeared miraculously. Uh, development of these vaccines, and hopefully, you know, these vaccines will make a big difference. Although, you know, the vaccines, I don't think will be available by the end of the year. Um, now, having said that, let's look at, you know, what's going to happen to the economy. Um, well, you know, the, the economic performances during and after the Spanish flu can serve as a reference point to look at. Um, it, it's actually a quite interesting, uh, if you look at GDP, it's actually quite an interesting uh, uh, curve you're looking at. Um, it, it behaves like this, you know, it has a very precipitous drop, as we would expect, like in China's case, it's a drop of, uh, you know, minus 6.8% GDP drop in, in the last two months. Um, and then it, it was followed by a very, very strong rebound, uh, extremely strong rebound. It's actually, a, you know, in my assessment, it's like a rebound with a vengeance. It's an overshooting, basically. Uh, and then followed by a very long period of tapering off. Uh, in the case of the United States, you know, there's some studies pointing out that uh, the entire 1930s after the Spanish flu, Spanish flu happened in 1918 and 1919. Uh, the entire 10 years after that period was a very much an economic boom. Um, and, and some economists attribute to that boom partly to the Spanish flu. Um, I don't think that the government should be too much concerned about the economics performance during the pandemic, other than the objective of helping people who really need. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, it, it's not a good idea to overstimulate because we're going to see a very strong recovery, a very quick recovery after this thing is over. Um, of course, you know, a lot of people need help. I mean, this is something that government should do. Now, in China's case, I can speak of China's case, the government actually, um, you know, doesn't spend a lot of money trying to, you know, give handouts to people, trying to help people who are employed. You know, the, the, the money injected into the economy, in my opinion, is, is the worst spent by just subsidizing people on consumption. I think it's a bad idea to um, stimulate in a way to, um, you know, uh, roll out those uh, uh, fiscal projects, uh, investment projects, infrastructure projects. In China, we call it soft infrastructure, infrastructure projects to create jobs, to help people, you know, earn a living. 
uh, and then to uh, help them uh, you know, weather through this storm. So I think uh, the, the, the subsidy, in a sense, should be spent that way. Um, the second message is that you know, the experience from the, um, the, the, the recovery after the uh, Spanish flu in the 1980s, 1990s was that uh, there's a distributional effect. In other words, you know, the well-off economists, the well-off people tend to perform much, much better than the poor countries, than the, um, than, than the poor people. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think that has a very strong implication for the um, uh, economic landscape in the world. Uh, the distribution effect that you're saying, is does it come because of government subsidies, incentives, or is it well is, uh, is generated from wealth itself? This economic boom I'm talking about tends to be benefited mostly by people, by, by, by the countries uh, that are relatively well off, okay? Uh, the poor countries uh, tend to be left behind. Uh, so I would say, you know, this probably will uh, widen the uh, gap between the developed world and developing world. And I think especially, you know, it's a very strong implication for China's case because, as you know, you know, China has this one belt, one road initiative. We have 2,000 loans, uh, uh, you know, given to uh, many developing countries. They're mostly in developing countries. Now they're all having problems. These loans will have some problems, not right. just because of the economic performance, but also because of the currency. Uh, the currency these countries have, they're you know, starting to depreciate. So, you know, that's a strong, strong implication. Um, the, the third thing I want to also uh, point out is that, uh, um, you know, this is a, a natural disaster, basically. Um, the, you know, I, I think uh, the, the companies, you know, we don't have to worry too much about, you know, companies getting too much into debt, these kind of issues. Uh, look at the, um, the stock market right now in the United States. I mean, there's, a, there's an access of capital, in my view especially given the near zero, if not negative interest rates yes. parallel to this world. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, that is not much a problem. Once the economy comes back, once this pandemic is gone, uh, the economy will run its course. The companies will, 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 will thrive and capital will somehow appear miraculously. So I, I'm not so much worried about this. The, but, the big question I have for all three of you as economists is that, is that the, is that the economy coming back or is just the market? absorbing whatever liquidities the, the economy is not coming back i think this 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 pandemic is not going to go away anytime soon uh probably we're just into the middle of this uh so uh you know the, the economy is not going to perform well one element that i'd like you to add to it is some of the incentives that the chinese government has put in place uh you said uh that it should be uh, directed more to consumption um so can you give us a perspective of what has been done in china so far to oh either stimulate consumption or just hold in, uh, you know, uh, business activities uh, for, for the moment? Well, it, it does both things. Uh, you know, it, it stimulates consumption, not just by giving people uh, paychecks, not, not just by people giving money. Um, what it does is that it's, get, it's giving people matching funds for purchases. Basically, it's, it's a rebate of taxes associated with consumption. In other words, the government is giving back the taxes collected from consumption. You have to buy things to enjoy these subsidies, basically. Okay? That's one thing. The second thing is that um, you know, it, it's very difficult for the Chinese government to give free money to the poor. Okay, keeping that in mind. Um, the government usually doesn't do that. Um, second is that the government is spending money on a lot of projects. You know, what's try to um, uh, stimulate investment, uh, you know, infrastructure investment, uh, soft infrastructure investments. Now, is this things. different from the projects in the, the spending? I remember in 2008 was more like 300 billion uh, US dollars equivalent. 
Is that the same thing now? Uh, is, no, is it no, hard it, infrastructure? It, it, yeah, it has a dif distinction between hard and, and, and uh, uh, soft infrastructure. In, a, in, in, two, in, 19, in, in sorry, in 2008, 2009, the money is mostly spent on building railroads, bridges, those things, highways, okay? Uh, now, the government is talking about soft infrastructure. What does that mean? You know, the 5G uh, telecommunications networks, uh, the um, uh, charging, uh, uh, electric charging infrastructure within the cities for electric cars, uh, the beautifying the beautifying of the city, uh, you know, building, uh, you know, parks and, and, and roads uh, in a city, um, investments on new technologies, you know, they're in injecting money into uh, right. the, these new ventures about new technologies, AI, these things. So uh, that's, a, that's a difference. But ask you, uh, top three issues on your mind as an economist uh, in terms of how this whole process is going to work its way through. So let's think about Ebola, Zika, Nile virus, hepatitis C, HIV. What is in common among these things? We don't have a vaccine for any of these things. Yep. So finding a vaccine for a virus is really hard. Even if you spend decades and decades, uh, you may not get one. So the market narrative is that because we have this proverbial Manhattan project going on around the world, whether it is people sitting in Oxford or Moderna or Gilead, everybody has some sort of, a, you know, massive you know, race to coming up with a solution to this pandemic, we should be girding ourselves for the possibility that there could be significant delays and disappointments along the way. Making a vaccine is not easy. So right. that's issue number one. Second, and it's kind of embedded into the pricing of market, a major underwriting of corporate risk by central banks around the world. In fact, in the last couple of days, we're now talking about moving toward a formalized yield curve control in the US, not just to take care of the sovereign debt requirement, but also for the corporate sector uh, to keep the yield curve low as much as possible. And this goes back to the discussion that's been circulating in the central banking circle and influencing market pricing for the last couple of years, which is the notion of R star. What is the, so the natural rate of interest, has it been you know, gradually trending down over the last couple of decades? And with this pandemic and the likelihood of an economy beset with excess capacity because we wanna create physical distance when we go to public spaces, would that lead to even further decline in the natural rate of interest? When you look at what's happening to spreads around the world, sovereign spreads or corporate spreads for both investment grade as well as high yield grade, the view is central banks have come to the conclusion that R star will continue to go down and they will keep through price targeting, not more, no longer quantity-based monetary policy, but price-based monetary policy to keep a lid on things. So this basically takes us back to the 1950s, if you will, because I think that was the last time major central banks around the world try to dictate the price of money as opposed to the quantity of money. We are actually also going back to the 1920s, as John was saying, because I think if you look at the economic trajectory of the UK and the US post the Spanish influence, I think it tells you that post-pandemic policy matter substantially in terms of the trajectory the economy pursues. The US came out of the First World War taking the mantle of the global manufacturing power hub for cotton and textile. And it became also a big exporter of capital to the world, including primarily to Europe. UK came out of the uh, World War and faced the pandemic with a huge burden of debt and a commitment to going, restoring the gold standard and embracing deflation and massive amount of debt servicing as a result. This created many, many things that bedeviled Europe and the world for decades. I'm not going into all that. My point is, yeah. U.S. embraced globalization. When you look at average tariff in the U.K. immediately after the war, First World War, 
UK sort of shied away from globalization. So again, when we look at the market and when we think about what the market is pricing and the market is on one hand trying to price in some sort of a deglobalization narrative, countries will display home bias, companies will be forced because of political pressure to move some of their manufacturing away from China. Um, this should entail some degree of expecting inefficiencies, lower return on capital, perhaps even some cost push inflation. But none of that is showing up in any of the pricing we're seeing in the markets, whether it is inflation expectations or corporate debt or the sort of risk premium that investors would demand from equity. They're not doing that because they are sort of caught up in the very short term monetary injection and that underwriting of the yield curve and the corporate credit risk for the time being. So we're in a very interesting juxtaposition. You can come up with a fairly convincing stagflationary scenario for the next four or five years. You can come up with a policy divergence scenario where the US moves away from globalization and suffers, whereas you know, China becomes a new champion of globalization and despite all the pushback from the West, does more trade and does better. Or you could also have this debt deflationary scenario where we make the mistake of the post-war years after the pan pandemic, where what was the order of the hour, and Professor Bean talked about this at the very beginning, the order of the hour might be debt forgiveness, but if we don't do that, and if we start talking in neoclassical terms, then let the business sector cleanse its way out, let the consumers feel some crunch because it is needed, we'll be making fatal mistakes. But interestingly, uh, there are countries which run long-term deficit budgets and there are countries which you know have um, reserves and uh, uh, is there a difference in the in the way that uh, you know how resourceful a country is in terms of uh, you know how they're going to deal with debt and long-term um, uh, long-term uh, you know negative um, uh, growth Look at the example of what's happening to the market pricing of debt for the sovereigns of India and Indonesia as we speak. Both countries are looking at extremely weak growth rate. Uh, particularly India also has a massive fiscal overhang. You would expect that the India not right now to display some degree of fiscal dominance, which would lead to inflationary expectations going up, which would lead to significant rise in interest rates. Yeah. The opposite is happening. Why? Because again, I think the market is displaying this belief that even India's R star is going down substantially. And between the central bank and the Ministry of Finance, there'll be a lot of debt monetization. But the risk out of that is not that there'll be this big explosion of inflation because we are all, again, looking at a world of low growth and low interest rates, not demand push inflation, not cost push inflation. What are interest rates looking like in China? And, um, you know, and how's the PBOC guiding interest rates um, um, right now well, the problem in China right now, uh, from the government's perspective, is trying to ex trying their best to incentivize banks to extend credit to small and medium-sized businesses. Now, right. if that's the objective, um, you know, lowering interest rate, uh, really, or, or other measures like you know, re reduced reserve ratio and stuff like that, really doesn't help um, across the board because the banks will still have no incentives to make loans to these small macro businesses. So the idea that the central bank has come up with is that they, they try to make these um, uh, these these uh, uh, you know measures. Uh, to be um, contingent upon making loans to these companies. Okay, in other words, uh, it has, for example, a um, you know uh, one type of loan specific reserve requirements. <laughs> I mean, the government's objective is really 
to resolve to solve the unemployment issues. And we all know small, medium-sized businesses are the, the workhorses of uh, creating jobs. Um, and and the current uh, burden, or look at the uh, bankruptcies that, that are happening or close-ups happening right now. They are mostly are uh, staying with those small, medium-sized businesses. That's their priority. So um, I, I, you know, the interest rate overall is trending lower. That's for sure. But I think uh, the more important emphasis is to create incentives uh, within the mechanism uh, to uh, help these small, medium-sized businesses. In terms of the um, Belt and Road Initiative or the, the entire program, uh, do you see any downside risks that are beginning to show up? You know, look at these loans. I mean, these loans are made in, in US dollar, but the proceeds from these loans, from these projects associated with these loans are mostly in local currencies. Um, so it's double jeopardy here. If the economy is not doing well, the currency is depreciating. We're already starting to see uh, many countries, especially in Africa, that are calling for China writing off this loan. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, China did. The government announced that we will uh, forgive uh, some loans. You know, there's a very restrictive category of loans that are actually being written off. On the pushback on uh, the U.S.-China trade agreement, give some concession, help with uh, manufacturing uh, data in China, uh, you know, does it show up anywhere? This agreement is over two years. Nobody knows what's going to happen in two years because of the political uncertainty in Washington. Um, but at the very least, I think the initial implementation of this agreement is mostly about purchases of agricultural products. This is something China is going to do. Uh, and, uh, uh, but moving forward, um, we, we don't know, you know whether the fullest, this, this agreement will be implemented to this full extent. What's the situation in China at the moment? The, the southern region is a lot to do with manufacturing and export, and the northern region is a lot to do with state-owned enterprises and heavy industry. Um, do you see a difference uh, in the way in which these two different regions are coping? The northern region you're referring to uh, is actually mostly restricted to the northeastern part of China. They are having difficulty. It's not a recent phenomenon. The southern parts, they are all developing fine. This structural picture uh, is going to stay here for some time. Uh, it's not going to change. Uh, but the overall mood, I think the economy is actually coming back. I would expect the numbers to... Uh, coming back very strongly, but now it's, you know, <laughs> looks like the second wave is coming. Uh, so right. we're affected by a little bit. But I think at least uh, the Beijing municipal government is going out of a way to uh, contain this. Uh, they're doing a lot of things. What your point about the fact that, you know, uh, emerging markets have not suffered as a result of, um, of going into the market to borrow. Um, now, is that, is that a leverage that, uh, or a window of opportunity for, uh, emerging markets with a long deficit um, uh, history uh, to be able to raise capital, to be able to pay their debts, um, you know, and rebuild the economy. I may have um, pushed the EM story a bit too enthusiastically. No, that's not my point. Uh, look, by and large, many emerging market countries are in dire straits. I mean, if you look at South Africa and Argentina and Turkey and Lebanon, uh, things are really, really bad. It's in our neighborhood in Asia uh, there's still substantial interest. We have seen in the months of April and May, institutional investor flows into Asian fixed income has gone up substantially. Even Indonesia, at the middle of the pandemic-related panic, 
managed to issue several billion dollars worth of sovereign debt and got multiple bids for that. Um, India, which has been put under negative watch list by not one, but two ratings agencies, still is not seeing a massive outflow in, uh, as far as the debt market is concerned. So on one hand, we do have eager investors still sniffing around, trying to find value. And they see in India still um, promise of long-term growth and they're still taking some position. Uh, and a country like Indonesia, despite being hit by the commodity crisis, there's still some demand. So these are the, what we call the high yield countries of Asia. But in general terms, the, sort of the nexus of emerging market liquidity and solvency outlook and the role that the central banks have played around the world, I think somebody far more qualified to talk about this is there and he's back in the call. So I'd like to actually pass the mantle to Professor Bean. This point about um, what is likely to happen to the underlying safe real interest rate going forward is really quite an important one. Um, as the discussions already exposed over the past couple of decades or so, this, this has been drifting down. Um, and it's fair to say, although we've got plenty of uh, hypotheses for why that might have occurred, uh, economists don't agree uh, on exactly what the story is. And therefore, knowing whether it's going to continue or not is, is uncertain. Um, I think it is worth saying that even before the pandemic came along, there's one important demographic force, which is about to change direction, so that we've gone through a period where there's been uh, a bulge of middle-aged savers uh, in the world who've uh, been in the uh, period of their lives when they're saving for their retirement, they're now passing into uh, retirement to old age when we start dissaving. So uh, the demand for assets uh, will start kicking the other direction. On top of that, the pandemic is leading to a, a significant increase in the amount of public and potentially also uh, private uh, debt. Uh, and you'll also expect that to start pushing up on the safe rate. Uh, so I think there's a bit of a danger of just assuming that this trend that we've seen over the past uh, 20 years is set to continue. But that then raises an interesting question uh, because you have a, a, a juxtaposition of perhaps forces that might be starting to push up on the safe rate. And I have to say, I think a world where uh, the real safe rate is in negative territory is not a, a, a good situation to be in in general. It encourages investors to go into uh, particularly risky class, asset classes uh, to try and uh, uh, get high returns, become excessively leveraged and so forth. So it creates financial stability risks. Uh, but we're in the situation, of course, where in the short term, central banks are doing uh, precisely the right thing by trying to keep interest rates down by uh, buying a lot of government debt to keep um, uh, government debt markets orderly and so forth. That all looks perfectly sensible as a, uh, a short-term response to what's going on. But when we come out of the other end, uh, I think it is important that central banks uh, start selling those assets that they bought back uh, into the market, um, not rolling them over. Uh, you know, I had left. I left the Bank of England in 2014, 
Uh, but about then, you know, I was starting to argue for at least not rolling over debt as it matured. Um, and I, I think there was a, a, a period when they could possibly uh, have raised rates a little more than they had done, and possibly even moved into starting some asset sales. This will become even more of an issue now uh, central banks' balance sheets are that much bigger. But this then raises quite an interesting point of tension with governments, because of course governments want to see the cost of finance being kept low, uh, whereas central banks uh, during uh, the, the period after the pandemic uh, wanting to shrink their balance sheets, uh, potentially putting upward pressure on that um, uh, cost of finance. Uh, so I think there, there's uh, potentially a point of tension between central banks and governments here uh, in the future. And the, the question will, will uh, Timer raise the question, will we see a repeat of the 1950s, the period of fight? financial repression. That might be the outcome. That's a world where governments are dominant. But I would prefer it to be in a world where actually uh, central banks start unwinding some of those purchases and we see that safe rate starting to move back up a little bit. I'm not, we don't see it rocketing, uh, but I think it would be a healthy development for the equilibrium of the world economy. Is it going to be a U-shaped recovery or a V-shaped? What are the milestones? What are the triggers? Some of the makings of that start-stop rebound is already in place. If you look at the data surprises that have come out on the macro front in the U.S. and Europe over the last four weeks, they've all been better than expected. So we have now reached the nadir of dark expectations of spiking unemployment and collapsing sales. The easing of lockdown led improvement in numbers are actually surprising us on the upside. Uh, and and you, you've seen that sort of, you know, just when the market was sort of turning a bit fatigued, having run up so dramatically over the last couple of months, now we have this upside surprise on macroeconomic data, which is adding further fuel to the sense of comfort and complacency. That so this will be short-lived. Uh, we will be seeing what the economists famously called a few weeks ago the 90% economy phenomenon. Uh, and you see that in mobility data, you see that in power production and so on. And it's sort of uniform across the world. Even as economies normalize or come back from the lockdown, it doesn't matter whether they came back from the lockdown three weeks ago or six weeks ago or this week, they all seem to be following the same pattern. They come back pretty quickly, then they stumble around minus 10%, minus 50% relative to capacity with respect to traffic and public transportation, with respect to people going to office and people going to retail stores and so on. So in a scenario like that, the upside surprise for the data will fizzle up pretty quickly and then we'll be in for some disappointment. In terms of sort of stress on balance sheet of households and corporations, of course, a large part of it is you know, being taken care of by the various support measures in place. Uh, and I don't think central banks will be in any position to withdraw those support measures going forward. Uh, so the risk, of course, is you, we see a sort of a repeat of the Japan of the 2000s, bit of a zombification of economies, companies that should be flushed out of this uh, uh, correction uh, by pursuing bankruptcies or restructuring will hold on because they will be able to refinance their debts at very cheap cost. And this is where Professor Bean's point comes in, which is 
everybody would like to see interest rates go up for the bullish reasons, not for the bearish reasons, not because of inflation, but because of expected pickup in productivity, expected pickup in long-term economic growth potential, and then the R star moves up. Um, so I guess the only way we can have that happen is all this money that is being printed goes into productive investments. What is the atmosphere in China with the regulators? The sentiment is absolutely, as you said, on the conservative side, because uh, you know this is after a slew of uh, uh, scandals and, and, and problems and, and, and blow-ups associated with the, the P2P era. I mean, there's a lot of money involved, a lot of people involved. So um, I think the government came out with a really bruised. I mean, there's a, you know, the last thing they, they're going to see is to see these unrest uh, coming up here and there in different cities, people protesting. So these are the things that, uh, you know, I think the government has learned a lesson. And I think that uh, uh, the entire the P2P experiment has been ended in a total fiasco. Uh, most, I think, you know, partly attributed to the government's lack of uh, oversight and regulation. So having learned that lesson, I think the government is becoming more and more cautious, uh, conservative in your view, uh, in your words, uh, when viewing, you know, those new financial innovations uh, coming out. Um, it, it, it's a good thing, I think, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, I think as, when the economy is doing very well, we sort of uh, got ourselves ahead a little bit and, and, and forget the lesson that in China, we need to do things on an experimental basis first uh, before, uh, you know, ex uh, advancing on a very large scale through the very large mass market. Um, and, and every time we did that, it's, it's always some problems to occur. So I think uh, moving forward, I think the government is definitely going to be very careful. Uh, and also, we're starting to see more and more consolidation in this area. I mean, you're, you're seeing uh, activities are mostly centered on those very large companies. Uh, that's weeded out uh, the small players, smaller companies. What is the thinking process that takes place um, after a pandemic is over? Um, what are some of the priorities that they set for themselves? Um, and, and how do they work through those priorities? The first thing to be said is that um, if we go back to just before the financial crisis, I could never have imagined the Bank of England or the Fed or the ECB having balance sheets the, the size that uh, they have. I mean, I think by and large, the right um, decisions have been taken, given that uh, there was a limit to how much further the short rate could be cut. It was the only viable way of providing stimulus during the recovery to the financial crisis. Inevitably, uh, when you're coming out of a downturn, you're going to be cautious about um, uh, raising rates or uh, starting asset sales uh, because you don't want to hit the, the recovery on the head just when it's getting started. But it didn't look all that strong. Uh, you often got the argument, look, um, uh, if we leave things too late, we can always raise rates sharply. Uh, but if we tighten too early and push the economy into another downturn, given we've got limited firepower, it might be quite difficult to, to get things going again. So it does push you towards being very cautious about tightening policy in the early phases uh, of a recovery. But that does mean that when you've got a window where things are looking better, you have to be prepared uh, to move a little bit more purposefully. I think one other thing that is worth uh, feeding into this, uh, which is 
um, re more relevant to the Fed and the ECB than it is the Bank of England. The Bank of England has mainly acquired government debt. So it's really just changing the maturity structure of the uh, public sector's liabilities. Uh, but the, the Fed have been um, involved with a much wider range of private sector um, institutions, and the ECB has been buying private sector assets. Uh, and that starts taking the central bank into political territory, which may also muddy the, um, the removal of, uh, of that stimulus, because there will be you know, politicians who have views about wanting to keep support for particular industries. You know, what's different from this crisis opposed to 2008? Initial conditions matter. I, mean, I think some countries have come into this pandemic with already fairly weak corporate balance sheet, financial sector balance sheet, both bank and non-banking system. And clearly, you know, for them, it's going to look really, really bad. I think the first case that comes to mind is India, where we've had a slow burning bank and non-bank financial sector crisis going on for the last couple of years. And this crisis uh, of the pandemic and the lockdown will, of course, make a bad situation worse. But when you go beyond, say, a select developing countries where the stress is palpable and then start looking at the, say, the more developed world, whether it is, you know, banks in Singapore, Hong Kong or in the West, of course, the big legacy of the 0809 crisis and the success of people like Charlie Wien has been to make the bank stronger. Uh, so we do have significantly bigger capital buffers and the uh, bank balance sheets are stronger and they have less exposure to risky investments. Having said all that, no balance sheet can withstand a minus 5%, minus 7% outcome for a whole year as far as GDP growth is concerned. And that would lead to some degree of increase in credit risk. We are seeing heroic response from central banks to ameliorate that risk. And so far it's worked pretty well, I have to say. So we now know that we've had a sharp contraction. We're not entirely sure about the shape of the turnaround. And we also have very little understanding of the duration of that recovery, right? Is it gonna take two quarters, four quarters, six quarters? I think the way fiscal monetary support measures are in place right now, I think the financial sector risk can be handled if we are going back to somewhat normalized world in the next quarter or two. But if it's going to go beyond that, if we're going to have a significantly staggered start-stop recovery, then a lot of these band-aids will slowly start peeling off and the bleeding would be severe and that blood will be everywhere. You know, if a country was as financially strong as China is right now, uh, how will the recovery process work its way through? Um, the recovery uh, is already starting. Uh, it might be uh, slowing down a little bit due to the recurrences of these uh, infections. But overall, I think the, the trend is, is going quite strong. Um, the numbers are showing quite strong. Um, so uh, you, know, you also ask about you know, the, the companies, uh, the corporate world. I think one thing, one legacy <laughs> after this uh, event, this, this monumental event, is that companies are going to change forever. I think there will be structural changes, uh, how companies are going to operate. We're already starting to see more and more activities moving online. And all of a sudden, companies, other institutions fit, start to figure out that you know, this model works pretty well. Uh, life can go on without having physical offices, for example. So I think that's a that's a, a profound, profound change um, into the corporate world. Right? We're going to see, um, you know, these companies uh, restructuring themselves. Uh, 
the business model is probably going to change as well. Uh, and, and they're also changing for the good, in my opinion. You know, they're making more efficiencies out of this, uh, this, this mayhem. So I think, uh, you know, overall, you know, we're probably moving towards a better world. You know? That's very promising, John. Uh, that's and a, and a very good tone and, uh, on which to, to end this uh, conversation. I hope to have you, all of you, back at some point again. We really need to look at recovery uh, in a, in a three-dimensional um, you know, aspect, which is what governments need to do, what uh, financial institutions need to do, uh, or any intermediary, whether it's uh, capital markets or financial institutions, and then what uh, has to happen in the real economy. All three of you have made comments on each of these areas. Uh, we look back to history and to trends, um, and, and we take stock of what, how uh, uh, you know, central banks have been behaving uh, up to now. We realize that once you put certain tools in their hands, uh, it's very difficult to take it away from them. So uh, the whole idea of uh, quantitative easing, subsidies, interest rate softening, and so on, uh, to lift it up again, uh, takes a process. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We, we, we benefited from all of your insights uh, as economists. Um, and, um, and this is a continuing conversation. Okay, and uh, we will be putting together different groups of people uh, and, and trying to make sense of how this process is going to work its way through. So thank you very much, all three of you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.